Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone, my name's Ant Fiorillo and welcome to episode 7 of our series of Pubs, Pints, People. With me, as always, where would I be without the pair of them? I've got Claire Phillips and Matt Bundy and this week we're talking about the wonderful renaissance of real and craft cider. Welcome to both of you. Hello, well of course we are talking about cider but we can't start without telling everyone how thrilled we all are to actually be able to go inside a pub. Just think you don't need to take your biggest winter coat, your umbrella, your galoshes, your you can go in and sit by a roaring fire because yeah. after all, it's May, isn't it? Hey, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so now, a rare example even of synchronising timetables, England, Scotland and Wales are now all allowing indoor pub opening since Monday, May the 17th. Unfortunately, in Northern Ireland, um, having to wait until May the 24th, which if you're listening as the podcast drops, that was yesterday, of course, tantalisingly one week after the rest of us. It's been such a long time coming, hasn't it? I mean, as you can hear, I've got a bit of a sore throat, so I, I'm, I can't go to the pub for a little bit. Have but, you been yeah. out since the 17th? Are you trying to hide something, Matt Bundy? Have you, have you just been in the pub since it reopened? It's because I've been sitting outside in cold beer gardens. <laughs> I, genu- I genuinely believe it is. Like, just gonna sit and just put, I've been putting in my shift, you know, putting my health at risk, you know, to keep these pubs going. Now, I've had a cracking time. I can't complain a bit. But, um, I mean, it's, it's fingers crossed isn't it? it's time to save the thousands of pubs and dozens of microbreweries who are hanging on by their fingernails to stay in business. This has got to be permanent this time and we've got to get out there to pubs for the long term. Absolutely, yeah. I think we all remember the statistic from the British Beer and Pub Association released before the April opening where they reckoned while outdoor space was permitted, only about 60% of pubs would have had to stay closed because either they didn't have outside space or they didn't have enough space to make it a viable um offering for for trade and even for those who do have outside space i know so many of you have had to invest huge amounts to either make things safe or to enhance customer experience you know quite frankly it's it's money that many really can't afford to be spending right now so we've got to get back and they've got to stay open yeah, I mean, that's absolutely the, the case where I live. Um, two pubs in our village, both do have gardens. One has used the out space, outside space a lot and they've had um, heaters and that sort of thing. But, but the other one, although they've, they've got some outside space, they just decided to stay shut until the 17th because they couldn't invest in, in all those heaters. And, and when you look at the weather we've had, you know, maybe they, they took the right choice because although pub owners and landlords have been coming up with fantastic and ingenious ways to make the space the best of the space they had, 
while obviously staying within the safety rules, you can't really account for the weather that's been thrown at them during this time. And <laughs> local authorities have cooperated as well. You know, some have given additional space for cafes, pubs and restaurants to use the pavement outside, which maybe they, they wouldn't normally be able to do. And so at least now we can take another step back towards normality. Indeed we can. And to Mark returning to the pub, Camera have put together some new Twitter twibbons and Facebook frames. You know those things that go around your profile pictures? <laughs> twibbons. I, I didn't know it was called a twibbon, which is a wonderful <laughs> phrase, isn't it? I think that might be my word of the week. <laughs> so you can put those on your Twitter profile picture and your Facebook profile to support the cause. And they are so you can show your support for pubs as restrictions lift. Check out whypubsmatter.org.uk to find these twibbons and the Facebook frames. And you can also learn about the Pubs Matter campaign. Now, without further ado, on to today's topic. All about cider this time. And we're calling this podcast The Apple, The Orchard, The Land. I love it. The poetic nature of it sounds fantastic. We're talking about cider, people. Golden, smooth, fruity cider. Oh, mate, steady on. You're making me thirsty here. Sorry, Ant. I know. I, and, you know, I love talking about cider. I love waxing lyrical about the wonderful juice uh, that goes into <laughs> it. And and that's that's the point, isn't it? You know, the, the UK, by the way, is the world's biggest consumer of hard cider. That's what the Americans call it, isn't it? That just means the alcoholic variety. Uh, I must admit, I've never heard of a soft cider. But that <laughs> That's is... just, that, isn't that just called apple juice? Apple juice, yeah. Apple or juice, yes. Or, 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 or fizzy apple-aid or something. Yeah. yeah. I've heard of it, never tried it, only the cider. And of course, just like the movement towards real and craft ales and the support we give to that, it makes sense to make the choice, if you're going to drink a cider, to drink a real quality product. Yep. And camera and the cider industry totally agree with you, obviously, which is why we've been hosting a range of celebrations of cider throughout the month of May. And this month is also one of Cameron's designated cider months, the other being October, which goes uh, hand in hand with the seasons and the uh, growth and harvest stages. And May is a critical month in the cider calendar because that's when you expect those apple trees to burst into blossom. And it's also when the fabulous cider from last year's harvest has matured and is ready to enjoy. Yes, and I'm sure that you can appreciate it at the moment most of those celebrations have had to be online but it does give more of us a chance to get involved and to find out more about the art and craft of making ciders and perries and as the title of today's episode suggests we'll be talking more about what our French cousins would describe as terrar. I'm not even sure if I've said that correctly. Terrar and it means goodbye in the north. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm one of those people if I if I go to France and I say bonjour they look at you like what on earth are you trying to say there? So, terroir. Terroir. Well, go on, Claire, explain what it means. Yeah, I'm I a bit better on. I'm a bit, I can't say it, but I have been looking up to see what it means, and it's uh, it's not an easy definition to track down. The word literally translates as land. The cider making process starts with the best quality fruit, which in turn starts with the composition of the soil, the kind of rocks that are underneath it, and so on. But the climate as well and what sort of water sources there are. Then there's the type of trees grown and the care and the skill of the apple growers and then the obviously the cider maker choosing the recipe, the methods of brewing and, and so on. I'm, I'm, you probably wish she'd never asked now, don't you? 
And, and is that right, Matt? Do you, or are you more of a grow bag in the back garden with your trees? I've only quite sadly thought about it with wine, where they talk about in the same vineyard there can be two slopes on a hill and you can get a completely different taste inside it depending on which side you're on. With my orchard, I nearly said orchard then. That is a completely <laughs> overclaim for what it is. For my for my four tr- four trees plus one, I don't know whether there's that much difference between the metre between them, but it, but it does make a lot of difference. And it all goes into um, the debate about where the centre of cider making is in the UK and is there a different style to a Somerset cider through to a Herefordshire cider so I can see it making a lot of sense and it brings it back to this being a natural product isn't it you know Mm -hmm. made with juice and it has all of that wonderful variety and everything that goes into the growing of the fruit has a real role in the ultimate taste and that's what we love about it you know it's not a synthetic taste it's from nature if anybody is interested in finding out more about cider, there's always plenty of content on the camera website to help keep you informed and explore this world. And I noticed that for Cider Month, there's actually an updated map of cider and perry producers that I've been browsing and a new visiting cider and perry orchards map. Mm. I know, I was gutted. I'm not on there. But, you know, <laughs> Are give, you not? No, just just give it to, to be honest, I didn't really want people to, you know, just tramping through the garden. <laughs> um, I'm here but, for the Bundy um, Scrumpy. The Bundy, Bundy Scrumpy farm, come for the tour. It'll take 10 minutes. <laughs> but Camera is also hosting uh, a range of cider and perry content on its Learn and Discover platform as well. So I just encourage everyone in this cider month of all months to go and check it out. Absolutely, yes. The new Learn and Discover content makes for great reading or watching, actually. There's some new pieces from Bill Bradshaw, a former cider maker and current videographer. Uh, Gabe Cook, a.k.a. the Ciderologist, is there. Alison Tafts, Matthew Curtis, Jane Payton and Emma Inch, all big hitters in our industry, folks, and they've got plenty of content there for you to listen to and watch. So do check it out because they have done genuinely a fabulous job. And just as we did with the real and craft ale debate, Cameron will be sharing a short and easy to understand technical definition, which will make it easier to identify what are real ciders and perry and, and what aren't. And the new definition, uh, what we call pointers to best practice, uh, it's not the dogs. Uh, pointers in terms of advice it has a strategic focus on the quality and provenance of the cider and perry uh, with a campaign focusing on empowering drinkers to be able to make informed decisions and you're going to be hearing more about that soon yeah i look forward to that because we're near the end of may now but you can see the remaining timeline of cider month celebrations online and we'd love to hear how you've been celebrating cider month so far as well Now it's time for our first interview. And what a way to start, folks, because we've got one of the real global rock stars of cider making, Tom Oliver himself. Now, for those of you who don't know, how could you not know about Tom? But back in 2013, Tom was awarded a Pomona Award. Um, And this is, and I quote, for work in securing the existence of UK orchards and preserving the tradition of perry production for future generations to enjoy. A Pomona Award, very prestigious and very well deserved. Oh my goodness, absolutely. And I have to say that that, that Tom doesn't mince his words when he points out how much of the current craft cider industry is owned and controlled by white middle class men. And I think we all know that diversity and inclusivity isn't just about paying lip service or to appear that you're cool at dinner parties. So it makes a real business and social sense to bring in the best and brightest minds to drive new ideas, encourage more choice and create a top quality product for consumers across the UK to export to markets as well. And listening into the interview, it's really all about getting quality into the product as well. Listen out for what he says about the importance of blending apple and pear varieties and so many parallels there with both beer 
and indeed wine, blends of hops and blends of grape varieties to create the perfect balance. So let's hear what Tom has to say in this interview with Alison Taffs. In 2013, Tom was presented with the Camera Pomona Award and a nice opportunity, Tom, I think, to reflect. Now we're at the 50th anniversary of Camera and they've been campaigning for Cider and Perry since 1973. What are your thoughts on that? I think they've experienced, uh, like everyone involved with Cider and Perry, the ups and downs of the world of Cider and Perry. But what's very evident to me now is that over time, they have found people who really do cherish everything that's I think, buoyant and vibrant about the Cider and Perry category. And particularly now, there's a new rush of young blood. This young blood may be in old bodies, but they really are trying to get to grips and understand exactly what makes Cider and Perry such a great drink. And they've gone back to the orchards. They've gone back to the fruit. They're now trying to encourage people to think about the varieties that go into making cider. They're going to understand how these varieties contribute to a blend. And so overall, they're painting a picture of the drink that coming from an orchard and how it gets into your glass. So this work that Camera have been doing, I noted that your award was for securing the existence of UK orchards and particularly preserving the tradition of Perry productions for future generations to enjoy. So why do you think preserving these really traditional varieties and perhaps methods is so important for cider today? The opportunity to make really good cider and perry requires the very best of fruit. And the very best of fruit will come from the best orchards, but not just only the best orchards. A lot of the craft producers are very keen on using the older trees. And these therefore means that you've got to have a situation where people are continuously planting to replace the varieties that are falling by the wayside due to time or disease or whatever. And if this isn't happening, at some stage, everything will grind to a halt. And so I think it's really important to keep planting, to keep grafting, to keep budding, to keep researching varieties, to keep finding maybe new varieties by whichever method you feel appropriate for that, and keep replanting the established old varieties that make great cider and perry. And I think there has to be a conscious effort. It does mean that you come bumping back up against the fact that this really is a sort of middle class white person's area because they tend to own most of the orchards. And I think we need to be aware of that fact in the way that we approach our cider and perry and the way we talk about it, because we need to try and be a bit more inclusive on the planting side of things. Yeah, I mean, there's been lots of focus on that, hasn't there, this year? And, you know, lots of focus on women insider and obviously hoping to keep that focus on diversity growing and stretching out to include as many groups as possible. This fight for keeping the varieties growing and looking after them, how does that connect up with what we're looking at now, which is really the modernisation of these artisanal craft ciders and sort of broadening the appeal? How do we do that? Uh, Well... I think you have to present your cider and perry in in a way that allows as many people as possible the opportunity to come across it. And I think I'm going to focus what I'm saying now on what we might call the craft end of the market. And this is not talking about volume uh, cider and perry, which has its own ways of getting to the market. But if you're a craft producer, you really have to make use of the tools at your disposal, which are a a fantastic story. 
uh, it stands up under any light, the story that you could present to the consumer or the interested person. I think you've got to make the most of the varieties that you're using. I think you need to acknowledge that single varietals are very interesting, but I honestly think they're only half the story. And the full story is wonderful blends. And the reason I think blends are the full story is that when you're looking at cider in the marketplace, you're up against wine, you're up against beer principally, but you're also going to be up against spirits and other drinks. But it's wine and beer that are the areas of the market you're looking to steal drinkers from, or you're looking to bring completely new drinkers into the category, in which case really well-made, good balanced drinks are going to be the things that will help do that in the mainstream. We also then have to look at the packaging. I think you need to have good-looking labels. Labeling has to be strong. The contents have to be really, really strong. And, and I think you have to then look at all the different packages that are available because bag in box does one thing, cake does another thing, bottle does another thing, big bottles do another thing, cans do another thing. We can make use of all these different packaging styles and we then really have a wonderful opportunity to get through to more people. You've recently made a decision to put some cider and perry into very modern looking cans, which we're delighted to be able to sell at the moment. But I noticed that they've actually sold out already. So clearly you've had some success there. It's been a really, really interesting experiment is not quite the word I'd like to use. But we've spent a long time, in fact, over three years getting to this point. I was fairly clear in my mind the type of cider I wanted to put into cans and the type of perry as well. We wanted to concentrate on fully fermented cider and perry, so no residual sugar. We wanted it to be unfiltered. We wanted it to be carbonated because we think uh, when you zip the ring top back on a can, the aromatics have to get quite a boost out of the can. And so we wanted good carbonation. Obviously, we wanted something that was consistent and safe in the can. So we had to look at all these things. We worked out the varieties that we thought would contribute to the cider that would make that work with those particular characteristics. We did it. Felix from the Fine Cider Company did a fantastic job with his designers on getting the labelling aspect of it sorted, that wonderful see-through sleeve on the can. And we put it out there. I think, you know, the cans attracted people. I think the contents have reinforced the fact that people will drink fully fermented cider and perry in a situation where they don't need to know necessarily initially what, what it is. They just really find they're enjoying it. So, I, I, yeah, we're very pleased. They've all gone and we're now waiting for a, a slot because, of course, we don't have our own canning line. We're not that affluent. And uh, as soon as we get it, more will be out there. So fascinating to see how the canning packaging movement goes to strength to strength with cider. I'm really looking it, forward to it. Yeah, I think it's a, a real opportunity to appeal to new drinkers. It, it, a lot of people now coming from craft beer certainly have been drinking out of cans for years and they accept that great beer comes from cans and they will have no problem with seeing cider in the same light. It gives people to take a drink with them when they're walking, biking, climbing, going to the beach going fishing or whatever, you know, it's a whole lot more opportunities. The 750 mil bottle that we've previously and currently are still championing doesn't lend itself to. So this is giving opportunity for drinking, which is fantastic. And I'm also really sure that the smaller cans are a real plus too, because they provide what I would call the, the school night drinking opportunity, where people don't want to have too much, but they want to come back and they want to reach in the fridge. And so suddenly that 330 mil can of cider becomes the things. Yeah, I, th I think there's a lot of new opportunities opening up. 
You spent quite a bit of time in the US, where I understand you're a bit of a cider rock star. What could you take from those visits and what you've observed over there in the US? Is there anything that we can bring across for UK producers? I think um, everyone who's been there, the, the one thing that everyone feels, whether you're a maker, a consumer, an advocate or whatever, is the unbridled energy that comes from a combination, I think, of youth, the fact that nobody is afraid to experiment or fail. They're happy to do both. And the fact that there is no perceivable tradition, reasons really aligned to an earlier comment, I won't use the word heritage, but there's all sorts of opportunities out there for cider. But also all the things I've said apply to any other beverage or any other way of approaching things out there. So what they do have is the ability to grow on a very large scale, lots of fruit in lots of very different climatic situations. So they've got huge amounts of great fruit. They've also got lots of wild fruit still, something that really isn't a thing in the UK. And it allows people to make almost anything under the sun. They also have an unbridled lexicon in the additions that they can make to the cider. So it's not just apples. It's very energetic, very inspiring, and I think the thing that counts for a lot at the moment is that over, I think, 60% of all cider sold there is in cans. Mm, Fascinating. So there we go. We connect that back up with what we were talking about. That's very interesting. It's almost like our goal is to keep the tradition which we've got and the heritage that we have with the wonderful history and fruit and the interweaving with our social history and harness that energy and, and vigor as well for the future. What are your thoughts for future direction overall for cider and perry in this country? The key thing is we have to engage with the next generation, the new blood that's going to be making cider and promoting it and selling it to the consumer, getting out in the marketplace and advocating for it. The industry is full of old white men, uh, of which I am one, and uh, we need everyone to pile in when they're younger and get stuck into cider. I'm absolutely heartened by the number of people who are coming into cider now from all angles, be they advocates, you know, like yourself, and like camera is embracing the new generation of advocates, be they young or old. And there's the way that cider has been written about in a way that it's never been done before, uh, the way people are talking about it, the work that's been done behind the scenes, by everyone who's connected with cider at a a craft level. It's really sowing the seed, but it is still seed sowing. Um, We still, we need more people. And it's at a wonderful, exciting moment. I think that I've never seen cider so appreciated, so talked about, so enjoyed. And it keeps building. And uh, yes, I think that obviously financially it needs to work for all concerned. But when I say building, it's not just a monetary thing. It's the emotional aspect of cider is increasing. People are feeling it, talking about it, getting involved, wanting to be part of it. And from that will stem all manner of progress, I think. So it's looking really, really promising. Absolutely great thought. And just to say, yes, the the vibe, if I sort of paraphrase what Tom was saying there, the vibe is great. And if you want to discover and learn more about Cider and Perry, then I can strongly recommend that you visit Producers and Orchards where you get the chance. I was lucky enough to visit Tom last year in that very brief window when we were allowed out and about. It was great to visit you and meet you and Yarek, your cider maker, and talk and see the production firsthand. 
Uh, otherwise, for May, Cider Month for camera, we'll have a dedicated page on the website. So cider events happening, including a launch of a map of cider and perry producers and orchards, just to direct you as well to the learning and discovery page where there are an increasing number of videos really giving you some insight into cider and perry. Tom, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Thank you very much for asking us. There we are. What a fantastic interview that was. And, and interesting comments about packaging, mm. I thought. Now, we're all familiar, aren't we, with the amazing label art on craft beer cans. And there are some great examples inside it too. Uh, you know, maybe not as well established. But I guess a question for you both. Would you buy a product purely based on the look of the label? You know, as, as much as I'd like to deny it, I have seen market research studies that say we all do it. But I, I don't think it's just as simple as that. If you make, say, 90% of your choice based on your knowledge of the style you're looking for, or maybe on recommendations from friends, online reviews, that sort of thing, then I can quite believe that maybe the last 10% of our choice would be dictated based on the quality of the label. But then on the other hand, I do sometimes go into say, a supermarket where I'll see a, a new product, um, you know, particularly in the biscuit aisle, which I do try to stay out of, but you think, <laughs> oh, they look nice. And, you know, before before I know it, I've bought 17 packets. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we get you. Marketing oh, wins again. Oh, my goodness gracious me. Do you know what, though, Claire, I'm with you. I, I, do you know what? I am a sucker for judging the book by its cover. If it looks good, I'm I'm sold. I like it. I like pretty labels. I like, I like bright colours. And to me, the message is that if a producer has taken the time and effort to create a good-looking and informative label on a quality container that gives a good feeling, then, you know, who am I to deny buying that? And it doesn't have to be an explosion of colours on the label. I like colours myself. It can be classic, it can be understated. And Tom's experiment with canned products showed that, and I love that. They completely sold out the first batch. When I think about it, I the, the label influences me for something that I don't know that much about. Mm. Cider, like, I, I would hope I know a reasonable amount about it so I can choose based on what I know about the cider maker and the apples and things. But wine, I, I know nothing about. And so I can easily be seduced by a nice bit of marketing or the thing. But I think, I think with cider, the, the, the perfect combination for me is a beautifully designed product which has substance in it, which is made by a great producer doing things in the right way. And if you get that combination right, then craft and real ciders, you know, are going to go from strength to strength, in my opinion. Mm. Um, I'd also urge people, by the way, to take up Alison's suggestion right at the end of the interview about being able to travel now within the UK to go to cider producing areas and book a tour of a cider mill. I did this actually before my wedding. I went on a uh, a tour around cider makers around Somerset actually, and and just to 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 get there to get it freshly out of the tap from the producer, Ooh, see them yeah. from mixing it live, just getting a feel from it. You talk about terroir, you know, when you go there and you experience the pigs snuffling in the orchard, and you try a bit there. There's nothing better than that, and I, I really really encourage people to do it. I've been on enough brewery tours in, in my time to know that, you know, a trip round a, a, a cider press would be absolutely fantastic. Can't think of anything better. You say that glass of cider right at, right at the end of the tour, can't beat it. No, no. And it's interesting what you just said there, Matt, about the... About what you look for on the labels because because i wouldn't so see for me i wouldn't as, as i'm not a huge cider drinker i wouldn't go and start looking at apple varieties or anything like that so is that something that you look for when you get a cider yeah i guess because i know the kind of 
profiles of taste that I that I like, and and I know whether I'm in um, looking for more that's on the bittersweet end or the sharper end or the pure sweet end. And I guess it's similar, like when if you're looking at a craft beer can, sometimes the hops that yeah, are very yeah. prominently I find myself displayed. I do that with beer, with hop varieties, especially because I know which ones I, I quite like. Probably most ordinary drinkers are not going to know the taste profile of different hops. You know, not everybody has interviewed such prominent hop makers as yourself. Oh, you know, well. as you did <laughs> at that, at that lovely camera session we had. But but you know, there, there is something there about how do you capture the broad market but also give the detail for the for people who who want to know and um i believe i've got an interview about how that works with craft beer next week so that ties into that really nicely oh nice what about you claire are you a label reader or- yeah I, I mean i i do um particularly with with beers and to a certain extent ciders as well i will have a look at what's gone into it a little bit maybe about um a story behind that the beer was something you know that that somebody started off brewing in their garage or something and then started their brewery and that was the one that they chose to make first or something like that so yeah I'm, I'm always interested to see um a little bit more about the product on on the label before i buy it good stuff now speaking of uh labels and being attracted to drinking things it's time for us to have a look at our here for the cider this week we're normally here for the beer but this week we're here for the cider and it's time for us to grab our trusty good beer guides or good cider and perry guides and have a little chat about where we fancy going for a cider so go on then claire what have you got for us this week well, I expect you'll probably think I'll, I'll head off to some well-known part of the country for cider making, as we're only here for the cider. So maybe Somerset or Hereford mm. or, or somewhere mm. like that. I'm actually starting in Essex. Um, and this is a pub. Uh, it's called the Woodbine, the Woodbine Inn at Waltham Abbey in Essex, which is kind of on the Essex Hearts, London borders. Just it, This pub is just off the M25. It's really handy to get to um, and on the edge of Epping Forest. It's one that I used to go to a fair bit uh, when I lived in that part of the world. It, it, it's right on the edge of the forest. You can set off from there and have some fantastic walks from there. But I didn't know, um, perhaps it, I think it must have become more well-known for cider since I last went there. It's won loads of awards for cider. It's been the Cider Pub of Essex. It's been its Branch Pub of the Year. It's been its Branch uh, Cider Pub of the Year. It's been Cider Pub of East Anglia. Wow. It's been, uh, I think it's been Cider Pub of England as well back in, uh, or finalist certainly, back in 2017 so loads and loads of awards for cider it has a a big sort of chalkboard of all the different ciders that they feature in there and I think they have something like around 40 small producer ciders and they make London glider cider which I haven't had myself but that's actually made on site so um, lots of different ciders there It, it it always was a smashing pub, but obviously for, for cider fans, well worth a visit. That's the Woodbine Inn at Waltham Abbey. Sounds delightful. Lovely. I like glider cider. Yeah. Sounds, what a lovely little... It just trips off the tongue. That's, that's beautiful, that. For mine, I can't choose my Berkham said local, The Rising Sun, again. But I'm going to keep mentioning you guys until you tweet me back. Um, it, it, that does have an amazing cider collection. But I am going to go to one of the homes of cider. As I know there's a, there's a debate about where the actual home of cider is. Ooh. And I'm just going to, I'm going to choose Hereford. It's called The Beer in Hand. And I like the fact that it's camera. It's been kind of a cider pub of the year uh, in recent years, and the fact that a a pub that is called that mentions beer by name, but is going to be the cider pub of the year. I think that is a, that is a good achievement. And also because in the good beer guide it mentions it's and I quote impressive chilled racking system. 
which I would I would love to see, mainly just to see whatever that is. Yeah, um, I think mm. we all need an impressive chilled racking system in our house. <laughs> like lives. one of those at home, yeah. <laughs> 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 nice. Uh, well, for me, I'm I'm not going to any any heritage sites for sure. I'm actually going just a 20 minute walk from my front door to to one of my uh, locals, and this is the Pole Hill Arms up in Renhold South End, uh, up in Bedfordshire. And I have spent many a times just walking up there. The, the from where I live, it's a it's a constant uphill walk. The incline starts quite gently, and then you end up with something a bit more. Um, uh, unforgiving towards the end but then of course by the time you get there and you've lost half your body weight in sweat you're then able to re- relinquish all of that lost uh, water with wonderful beers and ciders now the Paul Alarms has been our local pub of the year for a couple of years in 18 and 19 it's a wonderful pub We've got massive one of those one of those that overlooks a field massive garden at the front of it with a play area for those with families Serves some really simple, uh, delicious food on the menu. It's full of like memorabilia. You know those kinds of pubs that got lots of different brewery and beer memorabilia mm. on the walls. And more importantly, the pub has two real ciders in the winter and four in the summer. So you're always spot for choice. Yeah, I, I've had plenty of delicious, refreshing glasses of cider up there. So for me, Poly Alarms, I've not had the opportunity to venture back up there since uh, Monday. But I can't wait to get back up and see the gang because I truly miss them. Uh, and ironically, on the Good Beer Guide page here that I'm, uh, I've got open, what a quote to come across. But there is a quote at the bottom of that page on page 25, which reads, When you have lost your inns, drown your empty shelves, for you will have lost the last of England. I'm glad that you're coming up with a quote now after I've yeah. stopped ending each podcast uh, with a quote. Uh, that, that is the, that, and it was there in the Good Beer Guide all along. I can't believe I missed exactly, that one. Exactly, there you go. <laughs> anyway, it's time now for our second interview. And in this segment, we'll hear from Adam Wells, who's a renowned cider writer. He's interviewed by James Finch, a.k.a. The Cider Critic. And interestingly, Adam also stresses the importance of labelling in cider, just like we were talking about a little earlier and with uh, Tom's interview you as well. But Adam makes the really good point that if you're not familiar with the range of flavours of different full juice ciders, then you absolutely need to have a good label because the description of the style will then tell you what's what's in the, the bottle or the can. Yeah, it's a really great point, isn't it? Because in the real ale world, we already classify beer as a bitter, an IPA or a stout. So you have a pretty good idea of what you'll see coming out of the pump and into your glass. But many more casual drinkers may not be aware of the same kind of high level descriptions for cider and perry. So maybe that's step one. I think that would definitely help, actually. I think that's a good idea. And I mean, the same is true when you go to a really good real cider pub. You know, they ought to have some tasting notes available if they want to tempt people into trying something a bit different, I reckon. Yeah. Okay, well, let's hear what Adam has to say. You wrote an article for Malt Review a little while ago, which has now transferred over to, to Cider Review, which is your new website. Um, that was kind of an ode to the apple trees and the fruit through the seasons. It all raised an important point about cider discussion in general being very focused on makers and methods. So why do you think it's important to talk more about the fruit and the orchard? Well, fundamentally, because that is where the flavours of a given full juice cider come from. Makers can um, play around, they can use different fermentation vessels, they could uh, make something that's pet nat or traditional method or keeved. But whatever they do, fundamentally, the flavours are going to come from the apples, which in turn will be influenced not only by their variety, but by the trees in the sense of how old and by the land. 
be that because they are in a particularly warm or cold climate, be that because of the elevation of the orchard, be that because of the aspect of the orchard. We really don't have the answers to how all of those things affect flavour. And it occurs to me that if you look at um, the natural alternative fruit and vintage based product, wine, people who love and talk about wine are incredibly into not just the grape varieties, but uh, the place in which the grapes grow. And that is something that a lot of wine lovers will talk about more than they necessarily will the individual maker. Uh, for example, I know a lot of people who will talk about how they love a Merlot rather than this particular Merlot from this particular maker, rather than I love Marquez de Catharas Grand Reserva, say. You know, they'll, they'll yeah. talk about yeah. a place that makes wine they love, or they'll talk about uh, a, a variety of grape that makes wine they love. And I think that's somewhere that cider could and possibly should get to. Obviously, cider isn't wine. and for phenolic uh, and you know also and sugar and all sorts of other reasons not all apples have the same individuality and strength of individual character that grapes do that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it it doesn't mean we shouldn't understand what each individual apple is trying to say uh, and it doesn't mean that understanding apples can't help us understand cider more broadly than just knowing a handful of makers yeah absolutely so just building on that, I mean, you've written a further, you've published, sorry, a further article recently, which is a taxonomy, aims to give much more attention to the apples and the pears and their influence on the cider and perry, building further than sometimes the geographical focus. So could you talk us through the, the taxonomy a little bit and explain why, you know, the common styles that we tend to find people using to describe ciders maybe don't fit and how we get producers and consumers to kind of move beyond it and think more about, you know, what you've just described? Well, absolutely. Uh, and this is something that you and I and, and, and other uh, communicators like uh, Ben Thompson, Cider Voice, or uh, Rachel at Beerum Collective, or, or uh, Gabe and Grant and Martin at Neutral Cider Hotel have, have discussed a lot, is, is that if you look at where the character of your individual cider comes from, it's almost a little bit of a pyramid. And that starts with the orchard you're picking your fruit in and the varieties of fruit you're picking. That's, to me, the engine room of the flavours of a cider. And so just saying traditional method cider, uh, which for, for those listening who, who maybe aren't aware, is a cider made sparkling in the same manner as champagne, just saying something's traditional method doesn't tell you what it's going to taste like. For example, Bolhaze, which is a Devonian traditional method cider using um, cider apple varieties from the West Country is going to taste incredibly different to Chalkdown traditional method cider, which is made over in Hampshire. I think I've got that right. And utilizes uh, dessert and culinary fruit. Um, so even though they're both made in the same method, they've got incredibly different flavors. And without talking about the apples, in addition to the method, the drinker is completely at a loss to know what this cider is going to taste like. You know, if somebody picked up a bowl haze just because they'd love the chalk down, there is absolutely no guarantee that it's going to be to their taste. Now, I think what the taxonomy hopefully is trying to do, 
to not be excessively overcomplicated, to in the simplest possible way break down Apple's style style subcategory um, such that a drinker can build the, the fullest possible picture of what the style and flavor of that cider is going to be. It's really just an attempt to demystify the whole thing. Okay. So, I mean, that makes, that makes great sense, doesn't it? And, but there's also another part of the story, isn't there? The, the role of the maker, the provenance and the transparency of what they provide to the consumer is just as important, isn't it? It's important for the, for the drinker to understand what it is they're drinking, but they can't know that unless the maker tells them. So how important do you think kind of transparency and provenance are to the growth of, of craft cider? I think, I think they're very important. You know, there, there are only realistically, a certain number of people who are going to become as obsessive as you or I and are going to want, you know, the detail down to the finest nuance. But ultimately, as cider grows, there will be people who will want to understand why they really liked it, why it perhaps wasn't for them, uh, and have those little flag posts towards other ciders that might run along the same lines. Uh, and so understanding apples and, and, put, and championing apples and hearing them, putting them on their labels is hugely important, um, just as it was for wine uh, going back to the 1970s. Then. Um, producers from the likes of California and Australia started putting the grape variety on the label. I also think this is something I wanted to ask you and, speak, and get your take on, because it's something you've been uh, historically very, very good uh, at championing, that if vintage-based orchard-based cider is to differentiate itself from industrial cider made from concentrate, heavily diluted, made throughout the year rather than just at that one one time. Um, it has to show what it's doing that these more industrial uh, ciders aren't and can't. So, so uh, yeah, returning your question with another question, do you see people who perhaps do that particularly well? Where do you see the, the room for growth? Who's at the forefront of transparency? What particular things would you like to see done better? Well, that's a great question, that's actually. Question. I think it's difficult for the maker because you can't cram everything onto the label. The label's only a certain size. So I feel like there's two elements to it. There's the label itself and then there's the self-promotion and the use of other media to get the story uh, and more of the education element of it out there. So I think the key things are having a, a decent up-to-date website that kind of talks about how you make your cider, the seasonality of it, and then the label should kind of follow on from that and should talk about the varieties, the year, why have you used these types of fruit in a blend, what do they bring to it. There's actually some really good examples coming out of the USA. So people like Eve Cidery got a full breakdown of the different elements of the cider, which apples are adding structure, which are bringing acidity, the, the gravity of the, the sugar so you know what to, you start to know what to expect in terms of sweetness and dryness because we've fallen into a big trap over the years of just calling all cider cider and then just saying whether it's sweet medium or dry and that just doesn't give you anything you go away thinking that all cider's the same so I think there's a lot we can learn from kind of our international peers on on how to do things well there are some makers over here that are doing great people like people like little pomona who go as far as to food match tell you what temperature to serve your cider at have you got a couple in mind i mean i suppose if you use the taxonomy that we published on cider review as a kind of template 
Ciders that make that taxonomy really easy to use uh, include ones from Ross on Y, Wilding, obviously, um, a lot of similar ethoses to Little Pomona uh, in terms of naming fruit or orchard, um, talking about serving temperatures and so, so forth. Key difference being um, that uh, Wilding, I think, have uh, slightly sweeter teeth than, uh, than the Little Pomona team. But, but in terms of the information, they're, they're absolutely right there. The main thinking behind the taxonomy is to try and get away from this notion that cider can be defined just in terms of its sweetness and to show that it's actually a bigger and more complex picture. You know, but it's but it's not one that needs to be too large or terrifying or, or any sort of rocket science. It's nothing that isn't being done in wine. Sure, cider isn't wine, but that doesn't mean that they don't share similarities uh, in their making, in their background, in their seasonality, and it would be foolish to to not borrow where relevant from the things that have made wine a lot more understood by the um, by the average consumer. The problem with cider is that we've we've fallen into this um, kind of routine where we use the the only title, and and every drink is thought by general consumers as being the same. Um, so we've got to move beyond that. And the way to do that is to to educate and help craft cider stand out amongst amongst the others. And sure. the way to do that is to have uh, decent information on the label and it showcase the craft and the provenance that's gone into it. People care a lot more about what they're drinking now. Um, you know, the story that, that mainstream cider can tell is no way as uh, as fascinating as craft cider. Um, variety, diversity are, are key, aren't they, too? side of success and growth so just to finish up um you know like like me in fact probably more so you visited lots of different cider makers over the years what what inspires you the most to kind of write about cider fundamentally i came to writing about cider because it was something that i had been inspired by through visiting uh cideries meeting cider makers tasting ciders and learning about this huge history and this breadth of apple and everything else, and then realizing that actually cider wasn't, it didn't have what I saw in the other drinks cultures I followed. There, were, there weren't regular weekly cider columns that I could just read. Um, and so, so one of the real joys of writing about cider is, you know, it feels we are also at the start of something that is building on on what has come before so so that's always exciting what keeps me going is not just the love of everything um that we've already learned and i'm always inspired by thinking about some of the old pomonas and some of the old documents that were written in the 18th century where people were having these conversations about varieties about trees about the impact of the land and the place that cider was made the fact that that's happening again now is i think really really exciting i think cider is an incredibly exciting place uh, it has some huge challenges ahead of it not least the challenge of how to make itself a place that anyone from any background can feel welcomed i think that really echoes what tom was saying earlier that good cider starts with quality juice from the best possible apples and it's a huge contrast to the factory produced cider that's made from heavily diluted apple concentrate yeah, I'd just like to take a moment and let our listeners know that James and Adam have launched the Cider Review website at cider-review.com. 
com for those who uh, may be interested in learning a little bit more in a co- of course in addition to the content on the camera's website and learning discover platform your knowledge can only be expanded folks and as the name cider review suggests they have lots of reviews of craft ciders to give you some inspiration and maybe the confidence to try genuine craft cider if you haven't experienced it so far yeah and an article on that actually really caught my eye i was just reading and it's called one juice five ciders where five cider makers are given the same starting juice. Oh, I love it. And they produce five mm. completely different tasting ciders with it. What right. a great idea. I love that kind of stuff. That's a really good idea. Adam then does a blind tasting to see if he can figure out which is which. I tell you what, I wish I'd been allowed to have a go. Let's just say <laughs> I'd make a cider like nothing he's ever tasted before. Let me tell you that. <laughs> Yeah, he might just spot which one was yours. You never know. <laughs> As we're edging now, hopefully, please, towards better weather, it'd be a fantastic idea for a garden party. Yeah. You could buy a whole load of different ciders, let your guests do some blind tasting and, and see if everyone can put the right right cider to, to the right uh, cider maker, I guess. Perhaps we should suggest that James and Adam could come up with some recommended combinations, but... I see that some of their reviews are already horizontal tastings from a given producer, so that way you could economise, I guess, on, on postage costs. Mm. And I know that a, a lot of cider producers are already catching on to the idea of taster packs, so it's something else to look out for. Yep. Yeah. now one of the articles they refer to in the interview has a brilliant quote as well. If cider does indeed have a soul, it is locked in the apples, in the trees, in the land and in the slow cycle of seasons that brings all three into the confluence of a unique expression. That would be the terror. Terror, terror, All the quotes are coming out now, aren't, aren't they? I think I've swallowed a dictionary today, mate. That captured my imagination. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote that. I might actually put that on a carving in my house. And um, I'll tell you what, it does sum up, doesn't it, that quote, what both of our interviews have said and which I agree with. OK, well, now it's time to take a trip down memory lane with our dive into the archives. And this is from a What's Brewing article from 1983, one of our favourite years again, I reckon. <laughs> it's about the start of the cider boom. Ooh. And it talks about a 20% increase in sales over the previous 12 months. Now, in the year before this, in the years before this, 1983, the cider market had really stagnated. But I suppose people started at this point to discover a quality product and and it kind of took off from there this article seems to suggest yeah well it it kind of it it talks about the the big three cider makers at that time boomers taunton and coates gamer who were starting to succeed in promoting their keg ciders as an alternative to the keg beers and lagers of the day yeah do you know doesn't it make you realize how lucky we are these days to have a far better choice of product it does i mean i love the quote in here though about how they're defining what a cider is so it says at one point fermented eating apple juice may be an excellent drink but it's not cider oh yeah i I mean they're probably controversial now because there are a a lot of fantastic single varietal ciders made with i guess what you'd more call dessert apples or eating apples but but i guess it is a fair point that that bittersweet apples cider apples made to make cider should be at the heart of of all ciders and it's interesting it talks in the article about that's been a 20 percent increase in cider consumption at the time but that wasn't reflected in an increase in traditional cider orchards 
So there's a kind of a worrying trend there. More people, more people wanted to drink cider, more demand for it, but not getting it for, from traditional apples, mm. you know, because of the move that would come later into more kind of mass-produced cider, maybe more from diluted juice, as we were talking. And even talking about here that there was a trend for long-established orchards to be torn out in favour of other crops, despite the demand that was growing, which I think was really sad. Yeah, yeah and I, th- I think that was a problem for the apple industry generally, that, that there was such a reduction in, in orchards for a long time, not not just in 1983, but it, it kind of continued for, for quite a while after that, I think. But th- there is the, the message that if cider producers ignore the need for proper cider apples, then, then the boom would just fizzle out. And thankfully, we can see that common sense did win. And we're now in a golden age of quality cider production, plenty of exciting apple varieties and a new generation of craft producers as well. So good news all round. Brilliant. And do you know what? I think we'll ding the bell for last orders and drink to that. Ding, ding, ding. We've been sent a round of cider special drinks, haven't we, by the good people at uh, the Manchester Cider Club, friends of the show. And, and I have got from that a very special small batch charity cider from Artist Straw. And it's called A River Runs Through It. Love that like pun. It. I love everything about this. Um, and they actually attempt to run an environmentally sustainable cidery. And they donate uh, one pound from each bottle uh, to help preserve the River Wye environmentally. And I actually, while I was uh, drinking this over the weekend, I saw that um, Tom Tibbet from Astro Cider was on BBC One on Country File. He was explaining the River Wye project that the cidery supports. And I, I recommend people check it out because it's a great cause, a really good example of environmentalism and a fantastic product working hand in hand and it's absolutely delicious and a beautifully designed label as well everything that i love in a cider and that country file is probably still going to be on the the bbc iplayer for a while so probably uh, able to, to catch up and have a look at that i did try several ciders i wanted to do my research very thoroughly for this uh, edition of, of last orders and I, I visited a shop i think i've mentioned it before if, if you're holidaying in norfolk this year then head to the the seaside town of Sheringham and in a a little sort of it's not even an arcade it's kind of like some some shops off the back of the high street I suppose is a a best way of describing it but there's a a shop there called the Giddy Goat that just specialises in Norfolk beers and Norfolk ciders and I I had a a long chat with the the chap in there last time I was there and said uh, you know I need to try some Norfolk ciders as as well as beers so uh, he recommended to me um, a cider maker called Win Hill, which is W-H-I-N, and they're based at Wells Next to the Sea on the Norfolk coast. And I had a, a bottle of their dry sparkling cider. It's produced with 100% apple juice with no colouring, water or artificial sweeteners. And the apples are a blend of cider and dessert varieties. They come from their own orchards. They give a real depth of flavour. And it was a, a dry, full-bodied, lightly sparkling cider. Really nice. Um, it, it is 6.8%, so it's it's quite a strong one. But uh, it was just a really nice, tasty cider. I actually drank it more like like you would drink a wine rather than sort of pour a pint and, and drink it down. And actually, it comes in a, a, a bottle which is 750 mils as well, Ooh. which is kind of like a wine bottle. Yeah. So re- really enjoyed it. Sounds delightful, both of them. Well, actually, I have bust my Perry Cherry on the show, folks. I've actually gone and had a Perry myself this week. Um, and again, Matt's absolutely right, courtesy of the Manchester Cider Club, I was sent a can of Oliver's Perry. And with eager anticipation, I opened, poured and 
yum, yum, yum is all I can say. So just to give you a bit of a bio on the drink itself, it's an unfiltered, wild fermented, full juice fine perry. And it's made with, those who really want to know, uh, made with Blakeney Red, Red Long Dun, Gin and Buck Perry Pears. And they're from 50 plus year old trees. So um, really established fruit. And uh, the colour itself, nice light strawberry colour. But yeah, it was it was really nice. I, I, I've, as I say, I've never had a perry before, but I sucked through it with absolute delight. And um, yeah, I, I hope if you've had it, give us a shout on the Twitter feed as well, because um, it's one that I'll certainly seek out and get myself a, another can of if I see it in the future. And I, I, I should also thank the Manchester Cider Club. They sent me a, a fruity French cider um, from Hogan's. So thanks very much for that, guys. And with that, that's all we've got time for today. But do remember to check out the fabulous resources on the Camera Learning and Discover site, as well as all of the other links we've mentioned today, all, of course, available in the show notes. It's been fitting that we've been talking about high-quality labels for the craft cider movement, because in the next episode, we're going to delve into the mysterious world of designing bottles, cans and labels for craft beers. But until then, enjoy your return to the pub if you are heading uh, down to sit inside the pub now that we're allowed to do that. Uh, I did see a really interesting post on Facebook from people working in the hospitality industry about, you know, treat your bar staff with respect. A lot of them, as, as we've mentioned before, have struggled to get staff back. They might not have the same people in the kitchen that they had before the, the shutdown. Uh, there might be a few people down. So, uh, so, so do be kind when you're going back to the pub but uh, hopefully you'll enjoy your visit have a lovely pint of beer or cider and yep we'll see you again in the next episode cheers cheers Cheers. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. How does a free case of beer sound? Yes, you can grab a case for free courtesy of our pals at Beer 52 by going to www 
beer52.com forward slash people. That's the numbers 52 in the 52. And covering the meagre postage cost of £5.95. And what's more, as a special offer for our listeners, they'll throw in two extra beers for free. So that's 10 unique craft beers. Beer 52 is actually the biggest beer club in the world. Each month, they send their members a case of beer from a different part of the world, and this month it's an absolute belter. Their great European road trip case takes in the best beers from across the continent. So try a crisp, refreshing Pilsner from Norway's Lervig Brewery and a monster 7.5 double IPA from Sweden's Derges Brewery. On the dark side this month, there's a smooth stout from Copenhagen's Tool. There's also beer from Croatia... Poland, Germany, Serbia and Austria, among others. And if dark beer's not your thing, you can choose the light-only case. Also included is the ever-insightful Ferment magazine and a couple of tasty snacks. And even if, after all that, you're still unsatisfied, you can simply pause or cancel at any time. So head over to www.beer52, that's the numbers 5 and 2, dot com forward slash people to claim your free case of 10 beers now.